Uh, we are going to be in the Bible. I know it's crazy. We're gonna we're gonna be in the Bible, Acts chapter nine. So if you if you would grab a Bible or just flip to your Bible app, we're gonna be in Acts nine. Uh, I misspoke last week and said we were covering the whole chapter. We're not. We didn't, and we've got a little bit left. So we're gonna cover that this morning. Acts nine thirty two to to forty three, the end of Acts chapter nine. And today's passage, just so you can understand what's happening in the context of Acts and this historical narrative account that Luke is providing for us uh, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Today's passage is setting up the account of Cornelius, which is a crucial step in the expansion of the gospel. When the, when the gospel goes to the Gentiles in, in the person and household of Cornelius. So this is really a setup for that, which we'll get to. And we're really going to spend the rest of March on Cornelius uh, for the next three sermons. But today is kind of a setup for that. But now, in today's passage, we're seeing, you know, Peter had gone to Samaria uh, to, to uh, lay hands on the uh, Samaritans who had come to faith in Christ, who had been baptized under Philip. And now we see him moving around in Judea, and he's in greater Judea, and he's going to different places on kind of a church visitation itinerant ministry. And he goes to these various churches and he's helping to spread the gospel beyond Jerusalem throughout all of Judea, as we saw in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, uh, that, that the church would expand, that the gospel would go out from Jerusalem to all Judea and Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. And so here we're seeing it spread through Judea. And uh, we see this apostle Peter strengthening the church in these places and uh, bearing witness to the message of Jesus Christ, the apostolic teaching and gospel. So... Um, I was thinking about this uh, as I was looking at the passage today, but speaking of traveling, we're, as many of y'all, we're going to be traveling on spring break, uh, and we're going to Mississippi. Stacy's dad and Nanny are already there, and we're going to be meeting them there uh, next week, and uh, we've got this thing going. Uh, her, her nanny has quite a bit of, of land on her house. She has a back pasture, and uh, she, she's got these massive trees all, all across her property, and they drop these limbs. Like, I get, like, these little oak limbs. They're like this, like branches. I just run over them with the mower. She gets these things that are, like, this big, right? So what do you do out in the country? Well, you, you grab a four-wheeler, and you drag it to a burn pile in the back pasture. So we've had this burn pile going on her back pasture for years now, I guess. And the last time we, we burned a burn pile out there... It was so hard to start it because uh, the branches were so big and it was just so big that uh, we used an accelerant. Uh, I won't tell you what we used because, again, we were out in the country, uh, but we used some fuel to kind of serve as an accelerant to get the fire started so that it could kind of get established, so that it could kind of burn. And it was a, a massive burning. I think you could see it from the International Space Station, this, this, this pile of wood. But... I was thinking about that because I was just talking to Stacy's dad about what accelerant to use on this burn pile. But, uh, but the accelerant is, is really, it's just a small amount of fuel. It's combustible. And it ignites some of those bigger pieces that you put it on so that, that the fire can get established. And that accelerant is, is really effective at starting the fire. It's kind of like one of those burn logs, you know, that you use to get your fire going. We've got a lot of ways of doing this. If you ever grew up in Girl Scouts or Boy Scouts, maybe you remember trying to like get like flint and starting a fire yourself. It's not super easy, okay? Or at least it's not for me. I'll, I'll be honest and admit that. Um, but these accelerants really work well to, to spread the fire, but it's only meant to be temporary. You don't need to, once the fire gets established and it's got these hot embers, you don't need to keep pouring on accelerant, okay? And in the book of Acts, 
I want you to think about this, and it makes sense because uh, when the Holy Spirit comes on the apostles, he comes as a, as a flame. There's a flame that spreads out, separates out, and rests upon their heads, and they speak in tongues, and this is the great Pentecost event, right? Well, think of the gospel spreading through the book of Acts as a fire spreading across the world. I like thinking of that imagery. It begins in Jerusalem in that upper room, maybe outside of it, but it quickly spreads out to all Judea and Samaria, and eventually it's going to spread to the ends of the earth, and it continues to spread today. The fire's still burning. Nothing can quench it. Nothing can put it out. Not even the gates of Hades, as we see. But in order to get the church established, Peter and the other apostles, they were given by Jesus Christ authority to perform certain signs and wonders which primarily authenticated them as his authentic messengers. They were bringing his authentic teaching, his authentic gospel to people, and the verification, the authentication for that were these signs and wonders in the apostolic ministry in the early church. And the miraculous ministry of the apostles acted like an accelerant being poured out on this growing church. But as John pointed out just a few weeks ago, These signs and wonders weren't the main thing. That's not like, oh, signs and wonders, and we stop. And oh, how cool and sensational is that? They weren't the main thing. They simply pointed to the main thing. And the main thing that we're trying to get across, that that the, the inspired author Luke is trying to get across is the saving work of Jesus Christ, his personal work, the, the truth of the gospel. That's the main thing that they pointed to. But I got to tell you, it's easy to think of of miraculous physical healings as the ultimate demonstration of Christian faith and the power of Christ at work in the world. I mean, come on. When we see something physical, a physical miracle of healing, doesn't that seem like the absolute pinnacle of faith in Jesus Christ and the power of Christ at work in the world? Doesn't it? It seems like the best evidence you can possibly imagine. And there are plenty of false teachers, some heretical, some just harmful to the church, who put all the emphasis on physical healings and such, and so much so that their followers, their disciples in their churches and in their movements, feel discouraged if they've never seen a blind person receive sight instantaneously or watched a dead body come back to life. And it's like, oh, my faith, your faith, all of our faith is just pitiful. We, we aren't seeing these amazing physical miracles taking place. Now, like, don't mishear me. I have prayed for dead bodies to come back to life. I have prayed for my friend with cerebral palsy to walk out of his wheelchair. I have prayed these prayers. But you know what? Sometimes I stop praying those prayers because I feel like that's not God's will. It's like Paul praying for the thorn to be removed from his flesh. He prayed three times and then he accepted it. Others, I've continued to pray for these things, but always thy will be done, not my will. Okay? I've prayed these things, and I hope you have too, because God is capable of doing anything. If you put limits on God, you've done yourself and others a great disservice because you've reduced God to something less than what he is. And he is fully capable to do all these things. We see it. I believe in every miracle in, on the pages of Scripture that it actually happened, okay? These weren't just legendary stories made up in the early church, okay? But when we put too much focus on physical miracles, we sometimes forget the spiritual miracles that we've already experienced through faith in Jesus Christ. 
and that we will experience through faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, if you're a Christ follower today, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, don't feel bad if you've never raised someone from the dead. Don't feel bad if you've never, you know, miraculously healed a withered arm, okay? But also, don't forget that God raised you from death to new life in Christ. And that, folks, is infinitely more amazing than someone walking out of a wheelchair or somebody getting off a gurney who's been pronounced dead. Today's big idea is that we have new life in Christ, so let's show the newness as we share the news. We all want to share the gospel, but let's also, along with sharing the message, show people the miraculous newness of life that we have in Christ. We have new life in Christ. In today's passage, we see that accelerant of apostolic signs and wonders that were ultimately pointing to the power of Christ to save And we may look at Peter's miraculous ministry again and think, oh, I could never authenticate the gospel of Jesus Christ like Peter did. But how great would it be if you could share the gospel with someone that God's placed in your life, and then along with the sharing of that wonderful message, that good news of Jesus Christ, his person and work, to also reveal the power of Christ through our own personal testimonies of restoration and spiritual healing and revivification. Peter's two miracles in today's passage point to these two important realities for every Christian man and woman. Restoration for our spiritual disabilities and being raised to new life through faith in Jesus Christ. So first, our new life in Christ means restoration for the spiritually disabled. In verses 32 to 35, we see how the physical healing of one man leads ultimately to the spiritual healing of many. So it's not just greater in terms of number and multitude, it's also greater in terms of what's happening. The spiritual healing of the many is more important than the physical healing of the one, but God uses the physical healing of the one to help bring about the spiritual healing of the many. So let's look at that. Peter demonstrates the power of Christ over physical disability. Let's look at verses 32 to 34. Uh, Acts chapter 9, 32 to 34. Now, as Peter was traveling through all those regions, he also came down to the saints who lived at Luda or Lydda or whatever you want to call it, however you want to pronounce that. There he found a a man named uh, Aeneas, who had been bedridden for eight years because he was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your own bed. Immediately he got up. So here we see two important components that I don't want you guys to miss in this. In verses 32 and 33, we see that the man was helpless on his own. He could do nothing for himself in this condition. He was helpless. He could not fix his situation. Something had happened. I don't know what it was. Luke doesn't tell us. But something had happened eight years earlier that had left him bedridden. I don't know if this was a degenerative thing. I don't know if this was a sudden thing. He's out doing carpentry and a a giant limestone rock falls on him. I don't know what happened. But something happened to leave him in a state of helplessness in this sense. But 
In verse 34, the man is healed through Christ. And clearly the author Luke wants to give the credit to Christ. Again, this is where I really have a problem with some of these so-called healing ministries, right? Uh, I'll, I'll be happy to call them out by name if you want to know. But I, I just get sick to my stomach when I watch some of these guys, right? Because it's all about them. It's all the focus is on them. But clearly in the context of how Luke is giving us the story, he's not putting the focus on Peter. He's putting the focus where it belongs, and that is on Jesus Christ. And Peter even says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. And then back in Acts chapter 4, you remember when Peter was coming up to the temple and he sees the man by the gate beautiful who is disabled and he looks at him and he says, I don't have money or gold, but I'll give you what I do have. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up. And as he's explaining that to the religious leaders later on in Acts chapter 4 verse 10, this is what he says. He doesn't take credit. He says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He puts, he gives credit where credit is due, and that is to his Lord Jesus Christ. But I love the detail in today's passage. I mean, how cool is this? And I I always skip past this when I'm reading. Sometimes you got to slow down, especially familiar passages. You got to slow down and just soak in it a little bit. But look at the detail. The healed man, after he's healed, what is he commanded to do? He's commanded to make his own bed, which is probably something he had not had the ability to do for the last eight years. I hate making my bed. This guy loved the fact that he could stand up, bend over, and make his bed for the first time in eight years. In fact, probably every day after that, he was the guy waking up at the crack of dawn, making his bed, and taking incredible joy. It was a worshipful experience for this man to make his bed, okay? Uh, I love that. And can you, can you imagine how good that would have felt, uh, doing something so normal after so long? But again, the point is not simply that a physically disabled man was physically healed. That's not the main point. If we stop there, we've missed it. Luke helps us understand this in the gospel when he writes about why Jesus sent out his 12 disciples with power and authority to cast out demons and to heal various diseases and disabilities and even to raise people from the dead. Do you remember this? This is in Luke's gospel, the the prequel to the book of Acts. In Luke chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Now Jesus called the twelve together, and he gave them power and authority over all the demons and the power to heal diseases. And as they were leaving, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Okay? And then skip to, uh, uh, to the next chapter, Luke chapter 10, verse 9. It, it's uh, Jesus giving them information on this. And he says, and heal those in it, in these villages, who are sick. Why? He says, and say to them. What's the message that comes along with the healing? And say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. In other words, Jesus the king is here. The kingdom of God has come near and he's made a way for us to live as citizens of his kingdom, both right this very minute and for forevermore in his kingdom. He has given us the ability to become citizens and live in his kingdom without sin, without suffering, without Satan and his minions, without even death. And that brings us to our next point in our passage, which is that people believed 
in light of what they had heard of the gospel and what they had seen in this authenticating ministry of Peter, they, they believed and they received the cure, <clears throat> not for physical disability. Some of them might have still been physically disabled, but they received the cure for spiritual disability. Look at verse 35. And by the way, we've got sermon handouts printed if you want to read along with all the passages and things. And we're going to do that for the rest of the month. But Acts chapter 9, verse 35 says, And all who lived at Luda and Sharon, that's kind of the region up along the coast in Judea, all who lived, that's hyperbole, all who lived at Luda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Folks, to turn to the Lord is another way of saying that these people trusted in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of their sin and for eternal life in Jesus Christ, their Lord. And we see this idea of turning all throughout the book of Acts and really all throughout the New Testament. But just consider some of these, right? Some of these, these, these mentions of turning in Acts. Acts chapter 26, verses 18 and 20. This is where Saul is telling his story. Paul, at that point, is telling his story. And he talks about this commissioning that God had given him. And he says uh, in verse 18 of chapter 26, to open their eyes, this is part of this ministry, this apostolic ministry of Paul, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. That's what Jesus told him. And then in verse 20, but continually proclaimed to those in Damascus first, that's where Saul came to faith, in Damascus. So he's continually proclaiming to those in Damascus first and in Jerusalem and then all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they are to repent and turn to God, performing deeds consistent with repentance, walking in that newness of life, showing that fruit of the spirit. And then I just want to give you one more. And this is such a vital passage from the prophet Isaiah, the Hebrew prophet Isaiah that gets uh, uh, contextualized here in, in the book of Acts. But in Acts chapter 28, verse 27, there's this quote from Isaiah, and it says, For the hearts of this people have become, and this is Isaiah preaching to, to Israel, For the hearts of this people have become insensitive, and with their ears they hardly hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears. And understand with their heart, and what? And return, turn back to God, and I would heal them. So this is the main point of Peter healing a physically disabled man. That Jesus has power to restore people who are spiritually disabled by sin. And how does he do it? He provides us with forgiveness. He provides us with forgiveness. He provides us with reconciliation with God our Father. And he ultimately, as, as, a, as a testament to the inheritance that we have in Christ, as a pledge, as a seal, he sends us the Holy Spirit to indwell us, to empower us for the life that he's called us to. He, he works in spiritually disabled people like you and I through all these things. And you know what? Even as a pastor, I sometimes forget this really important fact about Jesus. I'll be honest, as a pastor, I forget this, that, that Jesus has the power to heal and restore us and make us whole. Period. Full stop. As a pastor, I forget this. 
As I prepare sermons week in and week out and, and do pastoral counseling with, with you guys and, and get into groups with y'all and, and talk about Scripture and talk, I forget that Jesus Christ has the power to heal and restore us and make us whole. Full stop. Period. In fact, just the other day, a friend reminded me of this. That I was talking to you this past week. I had had the privilege, along with the Reikleys, I'd had the privilege of, of sharing the gospel with this guy and leading him to Christ uh, at a Starbucks. Good gospel ministry happens at Starbucks, okay? Uh, Thank you, God, for for Starbucks, for these third spaces that we get to infiltrate. But uh, we were at Starbucks, and I had the privilege of leading him to Christ. And then also, uh, in the days and weeks following, I had the privilege to lead him through some deep, deep repentance of some really significant sin in his past years and years ago, that had kept him absolutely disabled by a feeling of guilt for what he had done and by the shame of what he had done. He was absolutely, I don't know of a better word than he was absolutely disabled spiritually, emotionally, relationally, in every way you can imagine. And so as I was whining this past week talking to him about not being able to see the power of Christ in this situation or that situation, wondering, is, is he even at work? You know, why aren't I seeing uh, fruit over here? Why aren't I, why isn't this happening? Or why isn't that, you know, marriage being healed? Why isn't this person immediately, you know, being able to set aside anxiety or something like this? And as I'm whining about this, he just lovingly and gently reminds me of his own story of healing and restoration that I had the privilege of, of being a part of and yet had totally forgotten. And it was so encouraging to be reminded of that miraculous spiritual healing because it was nothing short of that that miraculous spiritual healing through faith in Jesus Christ. And folks, we all need to hear these stories. I'm not saying God can't raise the body to to life and get them off the gurney. Again, I've prayed for these things. But I tell you what all of us have is a story. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, in some sense, he has brought healing to your life. And I pray he would do more of it. And I pray that you would have so many stories to share, so many personal testimonies to share, that people just just want, maybe they don't get sick of it, but they're just like, I can't imagine God being at work in someone's life to such a degree. And that's something for all of us. It's not just me as a pastor. It's not just for an elder. It's not just for, for Amanda as the women's discipleship director. This is for all of us as followers of Jesus Christ, to tell these stories and also to share Uh, other people's stories. If we are in Christ, then our new life in Christ means, at the very least, it means spiritual restoration. So how have you experienced spiritual healing? That's the application. What was it? Was it, um, I mean, I I talked to you guys like uh, relational conflict. That's a big thing in our lives, whether it's family or friends or someone at the office or whatever. But maybe that story is a story of miraculous reconciliation Establishing peace between you and someone that you never thought peace was going to be an option for y'all. Or maybe it's miraculous relief, like my friend, from the burden of guilt and shame that you've been carrying around for years. Something you did or said or failed to do or failed to say or something that's causing you to just feel bound up with guilt and shame. Maybe that's your story, is being able to share people like my friend that God took that off my shoulders because I have forgiveness in Christ and restoration through the power of the Holy Spirit. Whatever it is. And and if you can't think of a story off the top of your head of spiritual restoration, 
then just stick around Wayside for a couple years, okay? And we're all going to develop these stories together. We're all going to be praying for these things in our lives. Consider what story God might be authoring in your life today. I mean, guys, I don't know everything that's going on in your life. By God's grace, I have the privilege to hear some of it. But every one of y'all, God is writing. He's authoring a story for his glory and the good of others. So think about what that might be today. What relationship? What struggle? What is it? And who is he bringing into your life that needs to hear that story of miraculous restoration in Christ, even as you share the gospel and pray for opportunities to share the gospel? Who needs to hear that story of hope from your life? Think about that. But as we see in today's passage, faith in Christ doesn't just lead to spiritual healing and restoration. Our new life in Christ also means resurrection from the dead. And this is the end of our passage, and I'm going to go through it pretty quickly. We've got some big passages to read. But our new life in Christ means resurrection from the dead. It means participation in the resurrection life of Christ today, but also the promise of physical restoration, reunited body and soul in glorified resurrected bodies for the rest of eternity. And, uh, and, and at this point, uh, um, this is the point in the second part of today's passage, uh, the, the main point. So look at verses 36 to 43 with me. It says in verses 36, starting 36, uh, it, it, it shows Peter demonstrating. Now, he's already demonstrated the power of Christ over physical disability. We know that. But let's, let's, let's kick it up a notch. Peter now is going to demonstrate the power of Christ over physical death. So starting in verse 36, now in Joppa... There was a disciple named Tabitha, which when translated means Dorcas. I know you want to say Dorcas, and I know nobody in here wants to name their kid that. Okay, I get it. That's funny. Uh, uh, Dorcas, that's the Greek. But this woman was excelling. I love this description of her. I love how Luke just pulls out the human interest stories and gives us these interesting details. It says this woman was excelling in acts of kindness and charity which she did habitually. But it happened that at that time that she became sick and died. And when they had washed her body, they laid it in an upstairs room. And since Luda or Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, do not delay in coming to us. So Peter got ready and went with them. And when he arrived, they brought him into the room upstairs, and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics, uh, the inner garments, and the the outer garments that, that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. But Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter... She sat up and he gave her his hand and raised her up and calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. Now, in verses 36 and 37, we see a Christian woman, a female disciple named Tabitha, who becomes sick and she dies. And I need you to know this. Her name in both Greek and Aramaic means gazelle or deer. Now, if you've ever seen a gazelle or a deer, we've got them in our yard every day at our rental house. Uh, they are they're lively creatures, okay? They are uh, 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 very energetic. I'll just put it that way, okay? So that, that, uh, 
that seems to carry over with this woman. I mean, she's very energetic in gospel ministry and in ministering to the saints, particularly this group of widows. So she's, she's an energetic woman, which probably, as you guys well know, that makes it all the more difficult to accept that she's now grown sick and a sickness unto death. And that, that makes it all the more tragic for these widows that depended on her for, for care that she was taking care of. But then in verses 38 to 41, God resuscitates this woman in response to Peter's prayer. Note, I use the word resuscitates, just like with Lazarus and others, uh, the widow of Nain's son. And the reason I say that, not resurrection, is because, guys, we will be resurrected one day and we will stand and share in the glory of Jesus Christ by God's grace in resurrected bodies. That's not what happened here. She was resuscitated to life, but just like Lazarus in Jesus' ministry, she would one day die physically again. Body and soul would be, again, disunited at that point. So that's why I say resuscitated, okay? And this resuscitation has all sorts of connections back to the ministries of Elijah and Elisha in First and Second Kings. Uh, we see some of these stories. I won't get into all the connections. But it also has connections to similar miracles in the, in the ministry of Jesus. Because again, Jesus gives them authority to do these signs and wonders that were the exact same signs and wonders that Jesus was doing in his ministry. So it's, it's so that people can say, oh, this is, these are his messengers. These are his apostles. And so it looks like what he did. In particular, if you remember the story of the synagogue official, Jairus' daughter, who falls ill and she dies. This little 12-year-old girl. Remember this? And there are so many even literary connections between this and that, this account and that account. But that kind of serves as the backdrop for what Jesus Christ empowers Peter to do in this story. It's very similar. But in both cases, the point is not the return of physical life. That's not the big wow, okay? Like, sure, that catches people's attention, seeing someone who's been pronounced dead coming back to physical life. But that's not the main point in either Jesus's ministry or in Peter's. It's that Jesus Christ has authority over life and death, even over eternal life and spiritual death. He has authority over these things and that Jesus Christ has the power to grant us eternal life and a promise of resurrection. That's what, he, he, that's what we receive through faith in Christ. And so here in the passage, we see people believed and they received the cure for spiritual death. And look at our last two verses. It says in verse 42, it became known all over Joppa and many people believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed in Joppa many days with a tanner named Simon. So the miracle of one woman's physical resuscitation is eventually going to pale in comparison to Tabitha's future resurrection from the dead when she, just like you and I as followers of Christ, will be with Christ in his kingdom in glorified resurrected bodies forevermore. This thing that happened 2,000 years ago in that upper room in Joppa will pale in comparison to the resurrection that she will experience on that day and that we will as well and that so will the people who believed on account of that physical healing miracle. Uh, one of my favorite things about pastoral ministry is having the opportunity to hear so many people's personal testimonies about how you came to faith in Jesus Christ. And we run the gamut on stories around here. And it's really fun to hear how God worked in your life to bring you to putting your faith in Jesus Christ. 
And some people have these sensational conversion stories, not unlike Saul that we looked at. Remember this? Like he's on his way to go kill and imprison Christians in Damascus and meets the glorified risen Lord and, and all of a sudden is blinded for three days. And then, you know, this guy has to put his hands on him and pray over him. And like some of you have those testimonies of conversion. But you know what a lot of us have? Maybe what you would call a regular conversion story. What do I mean by that? It means you probably maybe grew up in the church. You went to Sunday school. You went to your youth ministry. Your parents or a Sunday school teacher or someone at camp shared the gospel with you. Maybe it was at Young Life Camp. Someone shared the gospel with you. And, and they told you that God loved you and he sent his son Jesus Christ to die for you because he loved you that much. And Jesus Christ not only died for your sins on the cross, but rose again. And now he's offering you forgiveness of sin and eternal life if you'll put your faith in him. And you believed at four years old or 14 years old or 24 or whatever it was. And so you have this regular conversion story. And you know, it's funny. Sometimes when I talk to people, there's almost this like sense of shame. Like, tell me your personal testimony. It's like this diminutive, like, ah, it's not really that special. Or maybe you don't know the exact moment you trusted in Christ. Maybe it's this sort of this process early on in life or later in life or whatever. And there's this kind of shit like, oh, I just have a plain vanilla conversion story. You're looking for some rocky road, <laughs> some rocky road to Damascus. Thank you, Trey. Uh, but I just, have this, I just have this plain vanilla that's not that special, okay? Uh, I want to tell you something, and I don't ever want you to forget this. And I want you to tell someone else this when you hear their personal testimony. There is no such thing as a non-miraculous, anything less than incredibly amazing conversion story. I don't care who you are. I don't care what your background is. I don't care if you came to faith in Christ at 4 or 14 or 44 or 84. I don't care if it was at camp or, or you came out of a den of sin and, and God just brought about this upheaval in your life and it went from night to day there is no such thing as a conversion story to jesus christ that's that's anything short of miraculous and amazing every single one of you has one of those and if you're enjoying eternal life right now it's because you were raised to new life in jesus christ and that my friends is nothing short of a miracle Paul describes this miracle of our Christian life in, in a bunch of different ways, but I'm going to read you two here towards the end. In Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 12, he says, this is, he's talking about you and I here. He says, having been buried with him, with Jesus, in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead, you were dead spiritually in your wrongdoings and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our wrongdoings. And then I love Romans chapter six, uh, verse four. I want to read the whole chapter, but I'll just do verse four. Paul writes this. Therefore, we have been buried with him, Jesus Christ, through baptism into death. So that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in what? In newness of life. Folks, if you've trusted in Christ for salvation, then you have 
a miraculous conversion story from spiritual death to new spiritual eternal life in Christ, period. So let's get excited about sharing our personal testimonies, regardless of the details, okay? Let's boldly proclaim the miracle of our new life in Christ for God's glory and not be ashamed. I like homemade vanilla. <laughs> like people, people need to hear that because maybe they're in the same boat you were and they felt like, oh, I don't know. I just, I don't know. I had this experience. It wasn't right. Like come along some and go, praise Jesus. That's a miracle. Now go tell somebody about it, okay? And then, and then let's, let's, let's proclaim our new life in Christ, but let's support our claims of new life. You saw this at the end of that thing I read from Romans 6. Let's support our claims of new life. How? By walking in newness of life through the power of God's indwelling spirit. I'm not saying in your own effort. Don't mishear me on that. I'm saying as you trust in Jesus, as we trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit is going to empower us to walk in newness of life. And if you're sharing this great hope of new life in Christ with someone, what better way to compliment that incredible message of good news and hope than by actually letting them watch you walk in the newness of life that you've received in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. When's the last time you shared your personal testimony? Have you, have you, have you even thought about what you'd say? Let's practice it. I would encourage you, write it down. Write out your testimony. Challenge yourself to put it in 100 words or less and then go share it with someone. Uh, Manny and, and David Dunn and I and, and several of us have done the Navigators 2-7 Discipleship Series. One of my favorite homework assignments in that, uh, Manny remembers this, I'm sure. He's with the Sparrows. Uh, it's to write out your personal testimony and to get it out on paper and then share it with somebody. We need to practice these things, Okay. That could be a great way to show the power of Christ to others as we share the good news about his saving work on the cross. And guys, I'm going to close with a quote from John Polhill. Uh, he wrote a really good commentary in the book of Acts, and uh, he wrote about today's passage this. He said about Peter's miraculous ministry here. Now listen to this. He says, In the footsteps of his master, and through the power of his master, which is evidenced by his prayer, before he called her back to life, Peter worked the same miracle of resurrection as with Jairus' daughter, I mentioned earlier, the widow's son at Nain, where Jesus just put his hand on the coffin and brought him back to life, Lazarus and Dorcas. It was not a matter of resurrection, but of resuscitation, of temporary restoration of life. But listen, hear this last part. But all the miracles of raising from the dead are in a real sense signs, pointers to the one who has power even over death and is himself the resurrection and the life for all who believe and trust in him. And that is our Lord Jesus Christ. Next week, we're going to see what happens to Peter as he remains a few days at the house of Simon the Tanner. And that's going to launch us into the story of Cornelius. Uh, we're going to cover that in the next three weeks. So let me pray. Please bow your heads.